um, the Supreme Court has passed. And I know that issues have presented an animosity toward Christianity. And I think that we need to be wise and we need to be careful, but we also need to be loving as well. And so as we look at the passage this morning, we're going to turn to 1 Peter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to be reading 1 chapter 4, and it'll be verses 7 through 11. And I shall start in verse 1, and that will allow us some context. But we're going to focus on verse 7 through 11. So 1 Peter chapter 4, and I'll start in verse 1. It allows us some context. And 1 Peter 4. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. When it says dead there, those who have died. In verse 7 through 11, it says, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious or sober and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another. Without grumbling, as each of you have received a gift, minister to one another. As good stewards of the manifold grace of God, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom being the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Shall we pray to open our service? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time we have. Thank you for your word. I pray that you would just allow us and enable us to understand it, but also to honor and glorify you. May your word teach us and guide us. May it convict us. May it lead us. And Father, we thank you for your word because it reveals yourself to us and help us to understand how we should live, especially in this uh, current era and age. And help us to live for you in all that we do and say. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The title of the message, How Should We Then Live? is taken, if you've heard of Francis Schaeffer, he has a book of the same name, has been going through and looking at the decline of Western culture. How Should We Then Live? He describes the book as, This book is, however, an analysis of the key moments in history which have formed our present culture. And the thinking of the people who brought those moments to pass. This study is made in the hope that light may be shed upon the major characteristics of our age and that solutions may be found to the myriad of problems which we face as we look toward the end of the 20th century. Obviously, it was written um, earlier than 2000. And as we go on, it's looking at the presuppositions. If you think about 
what has shaped our society and culture, whether it be philosophy, whether it has been a religion, where there has been morals. There's presuppositions that we present into every situation. But our history shapes our future. And as we move on, uh, LBJ or Lyndon Bain Johnson defines history as the knowledge which gives dimension to the present direction to the future and humility to the leaders of men. Although a country may develop industrially, technologically, and economically, there's often a decline in the morals and values that affects all aspects of society. When nations ignore scriptural principles and create their own worldviews based upon man's opinion, Christians are faced with a dilemma. How should we then live? Even in the decline of moral, there was a time where, um, historically, where people at least had a fear of God or understanding of God and of Scripture and lived a certain uh, moral way. And now it's become more of a group mentality of dictate how we should live. There was, There is no standard code per se. If it, everyone is based upon their own morality, how can we state that your morality is more moral than my morality if there is no basis? So as we arrive at the background in 1 Peter, 4, 7 through 11. Peter writes to a group of believers who are going through persecution, difficulty. But he also writes in such a way of look to the future. Eschatology. And those are always saying, you know, hey, today could be today. Or we live in the end times. We live in the time where Christ will soon return. Well, in the first century, they believed it as well. And throughout history, whenever there is persecution, people have believed it. And we believe that Christ could return at any period of time. There's nothing uh, that needs to be completed. And here, as we think about the eschatological or, or the future times, the apocalypse, the revelation or unveiling, and it refers to the kind of writing that in revelation, sometimes of hidden knowledge. But here, God's control over when history ends. And so this genre of writing addresses the issue of how the severe persecution of the nation of Israel could be balanced with the fact that they are God's chosen people and that God is still just and merciful and grace. What has been oppressed upon many people is God is love. And they say, well, if God is love, why does he allow his people to suffer? And the Jewish people were asking the same thing as well. If Israel, the nation of Israel, were God's chosen people, why are so many bad things allowed to occur? But as we look at the fulfillment of Scripture and God's plan, we see the divine perspective and the human perspective. And Peter writes to the Hebrew believers to strengthen their faith and to instill hope. The book was written around 65 AD during the persecution of Christians in Rome by Nero. If you are a history buff and enjoy the first century, these Christians became the scapegoat of Nero during the famous fire of, of Rome during 64 AD. And to give some cultural background, Christians were viewed as being antisocial. Christians viewed them as being atheists for rejecting the many Roman gods. And Christians viewed them as cannibals. You can give that list, Riley, up there. And, and the reason they were viewed as cannibals is thinking of Christians as a cannibal. Well, today we are going to have the Lord's Supper. And we're going to partake in two symbols. The bread represents what? The body of Christ. The juice represents the blood of Christ that we're sent. 
that was presented. We don't believe that it magically changed or mystically. We believe it's a representation. And it, we follow after. Do this in remembrance of me. So those outside thought, oh, they're taking the body and blood of Christ. That's cannibalism. But also they believed that they were incestuous, that Christians were incestuous, which in our today's society is they're coming closer and closer to allowing that relationship to occur. But what they mean by that is that sometimes we call each other brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not because we all have the same biological parents. But here they, they oh, they must, they believe that outside at that time. And their statements, oftentimes they said, oh, I love you, brothers and sisters. We use that term. And uh, this was the cultural background of, of what was taking place for these. And just to give you an idea, Cornelius Tacitus, a historian who hated Christians, uh, was an eyewitness during this period. He wrote the book History and Annals. I'm sure you've all read that, right? Just You can't sleep so you read the History and Annals of what is taking place. And so he describes the persecutions that Christians were facing. So listen for a moment. But all human efforts, all the lavish gifts of the emperor and the propitiations of the gods did not banish the sinister belief that the conflagration, the fire, was a result of an order. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. It's interesting the parallels to the Roman culture and to the, our immediate present culture. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hand of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a deadly superstition. Thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the source of the evil, but also in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world meet and become popular. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who confessed. Then, upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of arson as of hatred to the human race, of the human race. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames. These served to illuminate the night when daylight failed. Nero had thrown open his gardens for the spectacle and was exhibiting a show in the circus while he mingled with the people in the dress of a charioteer or drove about in a chariot. Hence, even for criminals who deserve extreme and exemplary punishment, there arose a feeling of compassion. For it was not as it seemed for the public good, but to glut one man's cruelty that they were being destroyed. Here's one who didn't even care about Christians, but he shared exactly what was taking place and what was going on um, during the fires, and that it was attributed to Christians. So, and uh, he, he writes about that. But this is the context. As we look at First Peter, and this is what was taking place. So returning to the context of chapter 4, we see that Jesus, um, Peter is explaining to them, Jesus suffered persecution, and therefore believers will suffer persecution. It is not that, oh, you know what? God wants you to be happy. God wants you to have money. God wants you to be successful. That is not the message of the Word of God. He will give you contentedness in every situation. But what takes place here, we see, is that there is going to be persecution. And so as we look through the passage here, moving on, the first thing we're given is an assertion. If you look back in chapter 4, verse 7, 
It says, Now in the end of all things is near. Therefore be serious, be sober, and discipline, and prayer. And as we go through, it is important because of living in the time, Christ, the return of Christ is imminent. So go ahead and advance that slide. The next thing we see is, number one, we're given an assertion. The return of Christ is, is imminent. It means that it can occur at any time. And there are no precursor events that need to take place. Matthew 4.17, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Christ was ready to establish his kingdom, but he didn't. But the fact needs to be a constant reminder to us that, guess what? At any time, Christ could return. And it's important because it should influence every aspect of our lives. Now, I'm not saying we should be like the early church, oh, sell our possessions, get together. That form of communism, if you will, didn't work. But that was their response. They wanted to try to help everyone. But here, understanding if, if Christ could return at any time, be ready. How should we respond? We must continually keep this in mind. And it's not a question of if, only when. So it begs the question, what will we do with our time left? Who will we impact for Christ with the short time left? What will we be remembered for? And I was thinking about this and preparing. I thought, if we were to think about a legacy, and everyone wants to be a legacy. In basketball, there's a legacy of oh, Michael Jordan or LeBron James. Who will have the greater legacy? And then I thought, you know, tombstones. And there are those who, you know, if you've talked about tombstone epitaphs. What would be left on your tombstone? And so I thought, uh, here's a few that we have up here. So if we bring up a, a couple, we have Harry Edsel Smith of Albany, New York. He was born 1903, died 1942. Looked up the elevator shaft to see if the car was on the way down. It was. Ezekiel Akel in East Dalhouse Cemetery, Nova Scotia. He writes, here lies Ezekiel Akel, age 102. Only the good die young. <laughs> in Ribsford, England Cemetery, they have Anna Wallace. The children of Israel wanted bread, and the Lord sent them manna. Clark Wallace wanted a wife, and the devil sent him Anna. <laughs> in Ruidoso, New Mexico Cemetery, it says, Here lies Johnny Yeast. Pardon me for not rising. In Uniontown, Pennsylvania Cemetery, they have, it says, and these are actually epitaphs that are on there. Here lies the body of Jonathan Blake, stepped on the gas instead of the brake. In a Silver City, uh, Nevada Cemetery, it says, Here lies the kid. We planted him raw. He was quick on the trigger, but slow on the draw. And then Anna Hopewells, these are some from uh, in Vermont, it says, here lies the body of our Anna, done to death by a banana. It wasn't the fruit that laid her low, but the skin of the thing that made her go. And some from England, it says, a lawyer's epitaph in England, Sir John Strange, here lies an honest lawyer, and that is strange. John Penny's epitaph in England says, reader, if cash thou art in want of any, Dig six feet deep, and thou wilt find a penny. And finally, a couple more. It says, in a cemetery, Hartcomb, on the 22nd of June, Jonathan Fiddle went out of tomb. And finally, last one says, remember man 
as you walk by, as you are now, so once was I. And as I am now, so you will be, remember this and follow me. And then what happened, someone replied by writing on the tombstone and said, to follow you I'll not consent until I know which way you went. So just a few there. But just hopefully it's a reminder of what will be left. What kind of legacy will you leave? Because ultimately our lives will end, whether it be by death or by the return. So the second thing we're commanded is to be alert. So it says to be alert. Verse 7 states to have a sound mind, uh, to be sober, self-controlled. And we often think of it as a thing that impairs judgment because something's going to occur to you. We know that one who's inebriated or sober, they can't respond as quickly to driving. And so outside elements that affect their life, they're not ready for. And here, as we look at it, there's alcohol, drugs. If you've ever had surgery, there's verse said that makes you forget things or a narcotic. They say don't operate machinery as you're taking this. Uh, there's people uh, that can be alert of others, the fear of. Or sometimes there's those who are in love with someone and they lose all sight of perspective. Because other people may say, hey, be careful of this individual. And they say, oh, no, they're not like that. Sleep. Those of you who, who don't get sleep, you can be impaired by external uh, circumstances. But we're told in Scripture to be sober. Even if you look at verse 113, uh, to be sober. 1 Peter 3.15, be sober, be ready always to give an answer to everyone that asketh you a hope of the reason with meekness and fear. A reason of the hope that is in you. Uh, be sober, be vigilant in 1 Peter 5.8 because your adversary is like a roaring lion. Now if you know that there's a lion outside and you have to go outside, I think you'd want to be at full capacity to be aware. Okay, be alert. It might be there. Uh, persecution will come in many forms. When it is, comes because you're living your faith, you have a great opportunity to glorify God through the experience. So you may not enjoy it, but you must be ready for it because it comes in many different forms. And the encouragement is to be able to respond in the right way. So to be alert. And this is from outside, things that are going to, you are going to interact with as we look at the difference here. Because the next one is to be aware. You say, now what's the difference between alert and aware? Alert is those things that come externally, but also to be aware. And here it says, as we look at it, uh, be sober in prayer. Let me just read through here, and it says back in verse 7, The end of all things is near, therefore be serious and disciplined. Disciplined in prayer. Watchful. And discipline in prayer is very difficult because it requires discipline. It requires steadfastness. It requires sometimes sacrifice if you want to accomplish something. And here in the New Testament, it's always used figuratively. And it applies, as we look at the future, it says, regarding the eminent return, that guess what? It will come to pass. It's not a hope, but remember the promises of God... We use the term, oh, I hope, the hope that will come. In English, when we use the word hope, it's used very in the sense of, oh, I don't know if it'll come. There is uncertainty and doubt. But when the word is used in the Bible, it is a fulfillment that hasn't been completed, but it will. 
And as it comes to the return of Christ, pray in a manner that you understand what is taking place is leading you closer to the Lord's return. Do not get trapped within your own little world. Some Christians try to isolate them from the outside, from the world. And while that may try to work for them, it, it's not that we can be separate of the world, but yet we are still in the world. It is required as believers to be in the world, to be light. And what occurs here is that we are to pray and be aware of those around us, those that need to hear the gospel, those who are blind to the truth. We must not lose sight of the need to share Jesus with others during the short time on earth. Many of you know that uh, uh, in June 12th, uh, we, we, the, uh, the day before closing, our house, uh, we lost the buyer. We have all our stuff in storage and uh, you know, it can be very inconvenient. And we're thankful for Shauna's parents to be able to have a place to stay that is comfortable. But to understand it still provides us with an uncertainty, doubt. Oh, will we have, you know, be able to move before the kids start school? What about this and that? And so all these uh, ideas come into your minds and you're like, oh, what if, what if? But we need to remember that our, our promise, the object of our faith is worthy of our trust. And when our circumstances change, it doesn't change the person who holds our circumstances. And it's important that that element of faith, as we respond, sometimes we're going to be a little fearful, but we sh it should not affect our, our object of our trust. And where it says, the faith, have faith of a mustard seed, it's saying where your faith is placed. It doesn't matter. The whole point is they're not, sometimes we look at it as a size. Oh, I have a little, or oh, I have a lot. But really, what it's speaking there is saying that it's not a matter of, of size, it's a matter of having faith. Because in appearance, it seems like a little, but you still have faith, the correct faith. Um, at that time, the mustard seed was the smallest, but guess what? It still does what it's supposed to, grow a mustard plant. And looking at Christ, the object of our faith, he is worthy of our trust. And so it isn't a blind faith. We must not, not lose sight of the need to share Christ and not lose sight of others about it. And so sometimes when we're awareness, our awareness, we can be so consumed with what's taking place with ourselves that we forget to look at, hey, those around us. Sometimes those persecutions aren't simply just for us to go through, hey, you're being punished or, hey, I think you need to work on this. That's sometimes what we think about. But sometimes the events that occur for our lives are for the benefit of others, which is not always easy because it's like, I don't want to go through this trial or tribulation. Let it happen to someone else. But it may be a teaching lesson for someone outside who needs Christ, sometimes a family member, and they see how you're living and responding, and maybe they're encouraged or maybe they come to Christ. Just to give you an idea of awareness, there's a, two engineers were standing at the base of a flagpole looking at its top. A woman walks by and asks, what are you doing? And they say, we're supposed to find the height of this flagpole, said one, but we don't have a ladder. The woman took out a wrench from her purse, loosened a couple of bolts, and laid the flagpole down on the ground. Then she took a tape measure from her pocketbook, took a measurement, and announced 21 feet 6 inches and walked away. One engineer shook his head and laughed. A lot of good that does us. We ask for the height, and she gives us the length. <laughs> But the point is, sometimes we're so consumed in, in looking at the problem that we don't understand, you know, that we can still arrive at the other results. But being aware. The next thing that we're given is we're commanded to act. 
and demonstrate a love toward other believers. And in the passage it talks about, in verse 8, it says, Above all, maintain an intense love for each other, since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Not always easy. In the first century, there was a lot of people who stayed with you because they didn't have hotels. And when Christians and other believers traveled, sometimes unannounced, hey, guess what? Guess where they'd stay? With other believers. Because they could get robbed and dangerous. It wasn't just family members. But sometimes it's hard enough for us to receive our own family members unannounced. We'd be like, get out of here. You're not staying with us. But here we're commanded to act. Demonstrate love toward other believers. Permits forgiveness of past sins. An ability not to hold a grudge. It applies to other believers. but Excuse me, it's toward believers, but it may apply to others as well. First of all, it's evidence in hospitality. You know, verse 9 and 10. And as we look at that, you know, it kind of, we could look at it from a, a perspective of, have you invited anyone to your home? Or out. I think hospitality has been lost a little bit, um, and sometimes our homes are just our castles. If you look at society, how it's changed, it used to be the front, front porch where people interacted as a community. Now it's become the reserve, the, the place in the back, the barbecue where everything occurs. Um, those of you who have grown up back east or midwest, it's just how society has become different. Here in Phoenix, it's just you drive right in, you know, you, you, or, you know, you, you don't want it because the only people that come to your door, they're selling something or they want to introduce you to a new product or they're going to um, invite you to their church. And it's like, you know what, we don't want that. And so we don't answer. But hospitality, you know, even among the local bodies of believers, there was a pastor who said, invite someone over for a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Well, maybe you don't have a home, maybe that you can invite people to, but go out, interact, share your life a little bit with other believers. Go out for ice cream. I haven't met many people who don't like ice cream. And maybe you have a dairy condition. Well, God bless you, get some without dairy. We can, you can have some of the um, Italian ice. But go out, everyone, you know, for the most part, enjoys ice cream or something cold. Go to uh, Sonic and get one of the uh, blasters. Uh, but you know, have an opportunity. And to, to get to know someone else who maybe needs a friend or maybe you might realize you may be blessed when you hear the stories of other people, to hear their testimony or their lives. It's amazing how closely we're connected. But also evidence and hospitality, but also speech. Words we say to others. How have you encouraged someone else through your words? Family, friends, employees. You know, don't watch the news because they haven't really learned this. But the speech and learning how to respond. When I was younger, it was easy always to be critical of everyone else doing wrong. As I mature and get older, you realize it doesn't matter. It's not a competition. It's not to make yourself look better. It's not about, about them. Really, if we focus on our own lives and our responsibility before God. And here, the oracles of God, utterances of God. Be careful what you say and be careful what you teach. Some of it was directed toward the leaders in the church. And what they would do is they would get puffed up and talk about, hey, you know, I'm sharing these spiritual truths. And, you know, you're not as mature of a believer. But it's not about that. It's about being able to show that humility in our speech, 
in our actions and as we interact with others. But finally, also evidence in our ministry. Actions completed on behalf of showing our love toward Christ. And in verse 11 it says, If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. In ministry, in our actions, our service to God through the local church, inviting others without jealousy, and our actions. You know, what is the motivation behind our actions? Hopefully it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart. And to understand we serve Christ. Not to gain some favor. There's times where maybe someone plays an instrument or someone sings or someone um, acts out. But it's through their God-given talents. And really they have the responsibility to honor God with their lives. Each of you have ability. And as, as you present and as you serve that is demonstrated as we look at the next one the final point we see we are given an ability we are given an ability in verse 11 it says the source and strength of our effectiveness comes from God that all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever amen with the ability which God supplies. All that we have. And maybe it's a simple ability to come to come to church. You might think that's the only talent I have. But guess what? If you come to church and are faithful, that's an encouragement to others. And you have the ability. You can smile. Each of us have the ability to smile. And if you don't, there's some who have a crooked smile maybe. But you know what? Use that. Your positive attitude. And the effectiveness comes from God. I thank God for each one of you. Sometimes you have to ride with someone. Sometimes you have to ride your bike. And I am grateful for that because you demonstrate a faithfulness and ability. And, it's, and each of you possess talent and gifts from our Heavenly Father. In our own strength, see, we would try to take all the credit. Pride would prevent us from identifying our true source of strength, which is in Jesus Christ. But God can permit us, He permits us to be selfless. And minister to others because of what God has done for us. And all we do is for the specific purpose of bringing glory to God through Jesus Christ. He is worthy of our praise and dominion. If we live our life in such a way that says, this person simply wanted to honor God with their life, that would be enough. When you are living for Jesus, it means that our priorities begin with God. No matter what we face in life, we are trying to point people to Jesus. And we need to live in such a way that others see Jesus Christ working in us and through us. When our job becomes uncertain and you don't know how you'll provide for your family, how you're going to get all your things, how, what do you do? You get all your family involved in petitioning God to teach them a spirituality. Sometimes we like to just take on a crisis, especially men. We had a men's breakfast and thank you for coming. And sometimes it's just like the man will just take it all on themselves and they don't reveal what's going on. But share with others because it's important. Some of you are very independent. Some of you ladies are very independent, sometimes stronger than others. But I encourage you to be willing, a little bit vulnerable to share that so that people can pray for you, to help you. Thank you for providing. I remember when things were taking place and as you provide for one another. It's not that 
you're being looked down upon, you are giving the opportunities for others to bless you. And that's an encouragement to everyone. And petition God. And when your whole family sees God working, and when the body of Christ sees God working, that reinforces their faith in God, whether it be through financial problems, learning to trust God, when it's a loved one who is facing a health issue, we need to be ready to respond in such a way that will show people that God is still in control. Likewise, when things go well, we must not forget God. When we do good things, it is not because we are a good man or a good woman. When you get a promotion or credit for a great idea, we need to thank the one who has given us that ability when we participate in any ministry, above all, seeking to honor God. And finally, therefore, we must live our lives with the understanding that the real purpose in our lives is to love God and use our talents to help others have a better understanding of Jesus. Because true peace comes from a personal relationship with Him. We should live with the thought that we could be in heaven tomorrow, but today we must finish the work that He has given us. Let me just repeat that last statement. We could be in heaven tomorrow. Really, that's when... These individuals who are facing persecution, that was a reality to them. They were being given over to lions and wild beasts, where it talks about being torn asunder. We could be in heaven tomorrow. God could say, guess what? Your life is done. A heart attack could take us that quickly. An accident, anything. But yet, in the meantime, we shouldn't live with, oh, tomorrow. Um, we shouldn't live our lives in that sense that everything, oh, I'm going to give away everything and live because I'm not going to be here tomorrow. Figuratively speaking, but we, we must understand comprehensively that tomorrow we could be in heaven. But guess what? While we're still here on earth, finish the work that God has given us today. And hopefully each of you understand that you have a purpose in life. God has given you a specific purpose. Maybe it's people to impact. And maybe it is uh, something to teach you, to be, help you to become more Christ-like, to learn. And as we move along in our lives, that gives us peace, but it also gives us understanding. God isn't finished with you yet. And so, as we face persecution, as we face the difficulties, shall we keep that in mind? In just a few moments, we're going to have partake in the Lord's Supper. Just going to ask the men to come and sit on the first pews, but take a moment of reflection. We're going to pray, and then just take a moment of reflection as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table.